Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 141. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Massachusetts. And on Life the School podcast, I like to get a panel of life science teachers and talk about issues that we're facing in our classroom. And today, I have the Twitter all stars uh, amassed <laughs> in a room, uh, a group of people who literally only interact uh, digitally in here. And now we're going to record our thoughts. And uh, as we go into uh, sort of what I consider state assessment season, and I'm sure my teacher, fellow teachers, will understand that as state assessment se uh, season. Uh, I thought it'd be fun to talk about like different forms of assessment um, and what this looks like in our classroom. And particularly, I remember I was in a meeting a couple weeks ago uh, and somebody who was not a person in the classroom kept on using the phrase authentic assessment as if they had just discovered the phrase before. And I don't think that they had any idea what they were saying throughout the whole thing. And I was like, huh, I think I could use a refresher. And so let's bring in some smart teachers here and and uh, talk about assessment. So uh, we're going to start off with our goofy question. And uh, that is, when was the last time you had to sit down and take a test? And joining us from Ohio, not from Arizona, but from Ohio, is Tanea Hibbler. Welcome back, Tanea. Thank you. It's exciting to be here. Yeah. So um, when was the last time you were on it? You had to sit for a test. Yeah. Okay. So initially I couldn't even remember and I didn't <laughs> want to remember. And then this horrible memory came back to me. And I thought about when I had just um, applied to grad school and I had to take the GRE, but I was like slammed with work and I didn't really study for it. And it was, I was, in, you know, it was on the computer and they like literally like pat you down before you go in the room. So I felt like I was a criminal before I even got in there. And <laughs> anyways, um, I almost walked out in the middle of the test because it was like, that's how bad it felt. But I took a test and I applied to graduate school. And I think my test scores didn't help, but I got on the wait list for Vanderbilt, but the whole thing didn't work out. But now I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. So I think it's good. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I feel like uh, you're, you're, I was a little before that, but it was a very similar uh, similar experience recently. Oh, all right. Well, uh, joining us from Minnesota, I get back on the panel again, is Mark Peterson. Welcome, Mark. Hey, Aaron. It's good to see you. Good yeah. to, and and uh, to meet some new faces of, of <laughs> folks that I've only just seen like stagnant pictures of and followed tweets. So anyway, good to be here. Um, the last time I actually sat down and and took a test that that mattered was uh when i moved from i finished up grad school at the university of iowa and moved to minnesota and i had to take the minnesota driver's license exam and it was still paper pencil there was no computer <laughs> anything back in back in the day and uh um i just i looked so hard at the questions you know i'd been driving for at that point in time i'd been driving for 10 12 years something like that it was like i had such anxiety it was just crazy <laughs> but uh i passed i have a minnesota valid minnesota <laughs> and you don't you're not willing to tell us the year on this uh pre-computer uh test uh <laughs> well, no it, it, had, it had to be like had to be uh summer of summer of 1985 yeah it had to be like 
May 1985. So, it, yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> Mark is one of my favorite people because he is literally ageless. Like, like you, you start doing the math and you're like, wait a minute. How old are you, man? <laughs> Every time I talk to Mark, I, I have the same thought. I'm like, his dates don't make any sense in reality. Like, I think he's like an X. He, he's like an X-Men. <laughs> like, I was 10 in 85. Right. Yeah. I so it, I'll, I'll just you know it's, you know people like this. I'm teaching. I I teach in a school that I started at and left and came back, and I'm teaching second generation students now. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm teaching with people that I had in my biology classroom. Mm-hmm. So I started teaching when I was six. So <laughs> it's a prodigy. prodigy. Well, he, and, and he had his driver's license like two years before that. That's exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I actually now have a student teacher who was born after I started teaching in my current school. Um, and I taught for four years before I got to that school. So he was born five years after I started teaching. So yeah, like, yeah. And he's a student teacher, like, you know, that, that kind yeah. of thing, you know? Yeah. The, so it's, yeah, I, I get, I get it. I get yeah. it. Uh, but yeah, you don't, you don't look your age, Mark. You never have. Right. <laughs> All right. And, uh, joining us, uh, conspicuously quiet about, uh, how old she was in 1985, uh, joining us from Missouri is Jess Popescu. Welcome Jess. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I really like how you put in your question, had to like sit down to take the test, yeah. which I think like, like pencil paper is what I was thinking of because I've done some tests for uh, masters, but as far as pencil paper, I think it was the Praxis, which was about like 2013, I think. Yeah. So that was, yeah. that was my last time. And I don't remember a lot about it except for being <laughs> happy when it was done. So uh, yeah. <laughs> that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny because I was thinking the same thing when I sat sat for a test. And for now, I don't think you sit for paper and pencil tests as much. I think it would still be on the computer. But I remember when I did my national boards back in 2006, and very similar to Tanea, I took that on a computer. And that was, by the way, the first time I had ever sat on, for an exam on a computer, right? And I like, so I had to go into a testing center. And similarly, I had to like, like they patted you down and I had to leave like my bag and my, all my stuff out in a special, like in a locker, in a room outside. And I, I, so they, they made sure that I only had like, I had could take notes on paper and pen that they gave me. Um, and I couldn't take that with me, but it was there for my own note taking. And I had to sit at a computer and take it. And I had never taken an exam on a, on a computer before. And yeah, it was. Um, and I remember reading the first question and going, I have no idea what they want. Like, this is so um, vague and broad right. and like the, yeah. I could go this way or I could go that way. And uh, yeah, it was in, an interesting insight to sort of get in that headspace. And, and so when I was thinking about, you know, and we'll get into different types of assessment, um, I, I, I think it's really one of the things I've learned a lot um, over the last few years. And as uh, before you got on here, Jess, I was, I was referring to you as uh, part of the, the Brad tree of uh, Kansas uh, teachers uh, <laughs> that like all the wonderful, wonderful teachers we know from Kansas. But um, one of the things I think about is like where I get like my best student mindset is when I go to NABT and I go to whatever session Brad is running and I feel dumb, like, Oh God, he's going to call on me. And I don't know the answer. And like, he's going to do this thing that's over my head. But in that mentality, it's not just Brad. There's a lot of people who I go into those spaces and I don't know it, but I always feel like grateful after I come out of that session. Cause I feel like, Oh yeah, this is how my students feel. Like 
all the time. And if you don't do that as a teacher, and I, I think that, you know, that's an uncomfortable thing to do. You forget sort of that, that feeling that I think every one of us expressed hating taking tests. And ironically, that's what we all, we all do all the time. <laughs> all right. So let's, uh, I said, I've threw out the idea of assessment. So let's, let's throw out this idea um, of two terms that get thrown around a lot. Um, again, these were not terms uh, when I started teaching that I heard a whole lot. And I feel, Mark, you're probably going to be in the same boat. Yeah. But two terms that I hear a lot used in education are formative assessments and summative assessments. So do you differentiate between formative and summative assessments in your classrooms? And do you, do your students actually know the difference between what is something that you view as formative and something that you view as summative? Uh, so yeah, for sure. That's uh, uh, back in the day. I think about any assessment training that we had, even in graduate school, uh, in the Department of Science Education at the University of Iowa. Oh, wait, we didn't have anything about <laughs> assessment training. So it was, yeah. And for sure, um, for probably the majority of my career, everything in my classroom was summative. And it's only been in the last 15 years that I've really shifted uh, my assessment practice. Um, I don't talk about with my students, uh, I don't talk uh, about, I don't use the terms formative and summative. Um, I use the terms practice and then end of learning um, events, <clears throat> mostly because I just think formative and summative are kind of jargony. I think you and I mm-hmm. can talk about those things, but formative, yeah, we're, we're talking, we're, you're in the middle of forming your learning. That's, that's a great point, but Students just want to know if it counts. I mean, mm-hmm. is it going to show up in the grade book? And so I, you know, I use those two terms, uh, practice um, and end of learning events, end of learning assessments or whatever. Um, if you look at my grade book, and I've had really good conversations with my administration about this, like over the course of the semester, I'll only have six things in my grade book. And those are just end of learning events. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's, that's the forward-facing um, student information system that we have. Um, but uh, the, all the practice stuff that either I do formally record or just give feedback on the spot to students, um, mm-hmm. that doesn't affect their grades. Uh, it does get recorded, typically. Um, you know, those on-the-spot kind of uh, perception checks about stuff, I, don't, I probably don't record those, but... Anything that uh, they do on the computer or uh, paper pencil or um, any kind of product that they're giving me, those will wind up uh, being recorded. We use Google Classroom and I record mm-hmm. things there and then students can look at um, kind of how they did. And they typically know that before it's even in, the, um, in, the, in the, that part of the grade mm-hmm. book. So that's how I use uh, those terms, practice and end of learning. Yeah, it makes me wonder about like, to, do you have anything that is considered like practice or the students would view as practice that actually gets to be part of formulating their quarter grade? Um, no, I don't think so. No, okay. I, I, there, I, I, I really differentiate between those. I will tell you that, um, let me backtrack. Mm-hmm. You know, there occasionally will be working on uh, whatever the topic happens to be. And Uh, within my learning targets that are forward facing as well, um, the students know what they need to do and they'll be 
I'll have one or two. So biology students, sophomores mm-hmm. in biology. Um, there'll be a couple of students on rare occasion that when I sit down and talk with them, when they're scratching out problems on the whiteboard or they're modeling something, and I'm like, you've got this. You don't, you don't forget the test. Forget this end of learning stuff. You've got it. I'm just going to put the grade in the grade book right now because you're doing everything I really want you to do. Um, that, so that becomes like, like a conversational thing. Um, so in that case, I, I might make a judgment based on their something that was formative or a practice that I'm like, mm-hmm. you, you've got this. So you don't need to worry about any kind of real sit down um, end of learning event. Hmm. All right. Interesting. Um, yeah. I might circle back on the concept of the end of learning because uh, you know when does learning ever end but um i, I love yeah. the idea i love the idea that a kid shows you something that like yeah no that's it that's the target we we're going to get to that's yeah. the thing that we'd hit on the test you're right. good <laughs> i can imagine that shifts motivation mark can i ask what classes you teach uh so i teach um i teach six classes uh i teach uh sophomore general biology uh three sections of those and then i teach um two sections of uh we have this biomed track um, mm-hmm. And so two of those classes are framed under the AP seminar um, framework. So two of those are AP seminar and those are typically juniors. Um, and then um, I have one class of AP research that's biomed three. So the, the biomed, we have a biomed one, which is kind of, we'll call it an honor or a, anatomy physiology that focuses on like case studies instead mm-hmm. of just like here are bones and muscles. We look at, we look at, um, uh, disease states and then kind of work backwards. You look at the pathology and then figure out how systems work. Um, so that's, uh, those are the six classes that I teach. Oh. So I think it puts a little a mental perspective on mm-hmm. why, why that you could sort of just check off a, che- a box of, yep, you've made it <laughs> at that point, and especially in some of those advanced courses. All right. Well, Jessica, why don't we tell? Why don't you tell me what about formative and summative assessment in your classes? And also, maybe you, you asked the right question. What, what classes do you teach um, to give us a little framework uh, before you get into that? Yeah, it's so I same thing with the jargon. I don't use those terms in front of my students or anything along those lines. And I guess I I like to blur the line between the two because summative has an insane amount of weight. But to say mm-hmm. that it all rides on that and their future all depends on that is one, not helpful and two, not accurate. Um, and so the way that I, I try and do that is I offer opportunities for growth with everything. I offer retakes for everything, but not just like, hey, redo this assignment, turn it back in. For, for assignments, it's pretty general. But for projects, you usually have to sit down and talk to me for mm-hmm. um, tests and quizzes, uh, they have to justify, like, here's why this is wrong. Here's what the answer is. And here's why it's the right answer. And it takes a lot of time and their justifications end up looking more like essays by the time that they're done, but Mm -hmm. it really helps them to learn the content. And they, it's kind of funny because they get a little frustrated with themselves too. They're like, Oh, I knew this. (laughs) So um, it just kind of helps it to stick better. But I've also noticed within, you know, reflecting on, on teaching strategies, the last, three years have been a really big struggle for everybody. But I think for me in particular, I've used 
just, you know, kind of gone into survival mode. And I found myself using less and less formative assessment, which isn't, I, I don't like that. Um, I'm mm-hmm. glad that I have the opportunity to reflect on that with this podcast. Cause I was like, Ooh, I need to do something a little bit different there, but I find myself doing less conversational check-ins, which are super important as Mark de- demonstrated there. I mean, those are extremely important for understanding where exactly your students are and just continuing to build those relationships with them. So that's something I, I need to get back in on. It's just the other side of that is they are uh, at times mentally draining, especially if you're really trying to take no home, uh, no work home over the weekends, you know, like I, I need to grade in class to get it done. So I don't have to take it home or yeah. I can talk to my students and get to know them, but then I have to take all the stuff that I have to grade home. Or then I need to completely restructure my classroom and how I grade things. So I don't have mu- that much to grade in general. I don't know. It's a big struggle that I'm, I'm still in the process of figuring out. And it's just been put on the back burner these the past two, three years, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And so what kind of populations do you work with? Like, are you dealing freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors across the board? I have sophomores through seniors. Um, and then I have, uh, I teach a biomed class called human body systems, um, which is part of the project lead the way career pathways. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very test based and like their, um, end of course exam that they take, that'll be here in May is like 10% of their final grade. And that's a district decision. That's not my decision. Um, and so that class is very different from the other two that I teach, which are microbiology and environmental sciences. Those are completely project-based so that we can actually do some science and not just practice test taking skills. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, they, my human body systems kids are usually kids that know what they want to do and they're in there because they know they want to do a health sciences pathway. And then the other two classes could be kids that really want to be in there, but more often than not, it's kids who the counselors are like, Hey, go take a science class, please. <laughs> so, Yeah. All right. And, uh, and Tanea, it, you're, you're in a totally different place now. Uh, like literally you're in a totally different place. Um, <laughs> it's a little colder. Um, I, I enjoy the fact that when Tanea was moving, um, she described as being moving closer to me, um, and Ohio is not close to Massachusetts, but, <laughs> she, but, but I mean, relatively speaking, well, the two places, one was in New Hampshire, which is like a 60 minute drive from my house. And Ohio is like, what, maybe 11 hours away is not close, <laughs> but, uh, who, who are you, what, what are your classes now? And, and what are, uh, what does assessment look like? Uh, do you use formative and summative in these new classes that you're working with? Okay, so I'm kind of in a weird place right now because I didn't end up going to China. So I am in Ohio and I'm mm-hmm. substitute teaching um, for a teacher right now. So I have four biology classes that I just started subbing for and mm-hmm. I'll be in New Hampshire in the fall and I'll be teaching biology um, in the fall. So I'm going to answer the question based on my other, my previous school um, where I was teaching um, that's, that's <laughs> ninth grade uh, <laughs> biology and then also AP biology. I did not use the term formative and summative assessment with my students. Um, And especially with the ninth grade class, we did a lot of uh, whiteboarding. And I would like when we have these, uh, we collect the data, we, you know, we talk about the data, we whiteboard, present to to each other. And so a lot of times, whatever we did in class, I would ask the kids, okay, this is all the work that you just did, all the conversations we just had they know that I'm trying to see what their thought process is. I'm trying to figure out what their understanding is. And I'm trying to get to a point where 
at least um, as much as possible, all of us can come to like a consensus about what our understanding of the content is um, prior to us taking a test. And then the, that, that, that uh, summative assessment would be like the unit test and then the final exam. Um, but the, I didn't use those terms. And I would ask the kids to go ahead and like take a screenshot, uh, take a picture of your, of your whiteboard or whatever we've been working on in class, and they would turn it all in electronically. So I felt like I had a record of like everything that the kids did like all the stuff that we discussed, if uh, the parents came in, I could show the parents, you know, the quality of their work, how they graphed, the the comments that they would write down. And so I think that was just helpful for me to have like a, a record just to, if I was talking to the student or I wanted to give feedback to them. Um, and I, I would say that there were, I, I'm in a I'm in a transition in terms of thinking about how to grade. So I don't know how I'll be grading in the fall. Um, but yeah, I've graded like I've graded things that we've done in class together, like labs, or um, I've graded uh, a lot of different a lot of different things that weren't necessarily summative assessments. And I don't know if I want to be more like Mark and and shift <laughs> and really not grade everything and then just focus on the the uh, the summative assessments for grades. Um, but I'm kind of working, I'm working towards figuring out what's going to work at my new school and what I think is going to be best for the students. Yeah. And obviously the environment, once you get in there, you're going to, the, the internal feedback that you're going to get from that situation is going to play a big role in that as well. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it's interesting that you said that. And as you guys were all talking, I realized, gosh, I actually use the word formative with my students um, because I have created something that I call formative essays with my AP classes, uh, which are an optional homework, uh, an optional homework they they do. So um, in our AP classes, we teach sort of big unit ideas. And for homework options, I give them video, I give them textbook. And then I say, you have to pick um, this past year, you have to pick two of the practice essays, uh, which are sort of structured like the short FRQs on the AP exam uh, to do. And they can pick whichever ones they want. Usually there are six homeworks in a given unit. So, you know, we're talking over like a month, month and a half to to pick from. So it's not like they're doing tons of them. But um, I say, you know, uh, you should have one of them in by the mid quarter point. You should have one of them in within three days of the test. And if you hand them in early, I will give you feedback and you can rewrite them. Um, and I will I will do that. So it is a formative essay. I, I stole the language 100% for Brittany Franskoviak. And so I like literally just took Brittany's language. She called them formative essays. I called them formative essays. And so I guess I do use that phrase in, uh, in my class. Um, but I think that what it looks like for all of my classes is there's stuff I let kids redo and there's stuff that I don't. And so I think that, um, and I don't love that language. That's not my favorite like way of describing things and I kind of wish the students could redo everything. Um, but that's not what grading looks like in my school right now. And, um, similar to what Jess was saying, I, there are forces that are outside of my control that, that let me just sort of let students retake whatever. Um, I have a lot of say in how AP gets run. So, uh, the, the AP has a, has a much more, everything is sort of formative, kind of feel to it um and still has some room to grow but it's it feels that way and my honors you know freshman sophomore class it, it doesn't there are definitely the buck stop here summative assessments ones that you get what you get 
Um, and, and there is a divide in the curriculum there. Uh, but I think if you ask my students, they would realize that, oh, sort of the practice stuff that we do that does get into their grade book, that does represent 30% or so of their grade is the stuff that they get to redo. That if they make a mistake or if they miss problems, they're going to get feedback on it and then they could resubmit them. Um, and that's something that we do on a, on a very regular basis. I so, think that's um, the key though, like giving yeah. kids an opportunity to get feedback, right? Yeah. Somewhere yeah. along the way and yep. helping them grow. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have mixed feelings about it. Like part of me is like, I, like what Mark said is like, well, the stuff that I'm giving them feedback, they shouldn't get a grade for that because like formative stuff shouldn't be graded and they should just get their feedback. At the same time, there's stuff that they don't get feedback on and they don't get to correct, which I don't feel very happy with. So it's kind of like, I like the, some aspects of my formative stuff because I like that and I don't really care about grades. So like, uh, and they care deeply about the grades. Right. Like to me, the grades are this artificial construct that we have built like the entirety of our profession on. Uh, but uh, the point is, is that, <laughs> that, that like we, there, there's this, there's this sort of push and pull between like, I don't really care about that letter or number, but the students are heavily invested in that. Right. And so the, the community that you're in and the populations that you deal with are motivated by how you set up the, the, the economy of those points. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's, I think neither is perfect and both are flawed, but they do, sort of work for the population I'm dealing with. And that's sort of what I heard from, from, from each of you is that like, you sort of got to this point where it's working for the population, you know, in the reality of the, what it's like to teach <laughs> in schools over the last three years. This is what it looks like right now. Um, <laughs> kind of, kind of uh, thoughts. So. I really struggle with, and um, you know, like, a big part of what we do is introducing kids to science or continuing their curiosity in science or wanting to get them into a science career for some of them. And I, I feel like so much, like you kind of touched on it by talking about grades, but it's really hard to like make those grades mesh with, are we preparing you for doing and understanding what science is? Mm -hmm. Because like it, they don't mesh very well, usually, you know, with, I, I, that's that's my basis behind the the retakes i guess is because you know you often will be able like in science you're gonna mess up and then you're gonna learn and then you're gonna have to redo those things but then you could also say on the other side of that there's sometimes you'll only get one chance on stuff too so i don't know i that's that's kind of where my struggle comes in at you know if i really want to teach them what science is then i don't know putting a grade to that's really hard yeah, it's a, it is a tough balance. And I think of like, you know, uh, people I know who work in labs who are like, yep, my company ordered these special transgenic mice and they cost, you know, $16,000 a mouse. So we have <laughs> 10 of them and we're running this experiment. And you know what? If you screw that, you screw up that experiment, uh, they aren't going to be like, oh, sure, let's run it again. they like, no, no, you got to run the lab right the first time and get good data and evaluate that study because, you know, they spent that money on those and, and that's, you know, that's the way, that's the way things sometimes work. Um, yeah. Or you're going to go do a field study and the field study takes place during this window of time. 
And this is the time that that migration's gonna happen. <laughs> and if you oversleep <laughs> on that morning, <laughs> you're not getting the data. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I mean, and then, then there's also luck that comes involved. In, I think with a lot of that science, that things have to line up for you. But you're right that there, there, you would love to say that you can always redo something. I think the reality is you can redo things more often than we often give opportunities for in school. Uh, but there is there is a, a practicality piece. All right. Well, let's uh, let's give a shot at the at the next one, which I I love to. I for the people who who just listen to these, I do make uh, extensive show notes, and everyone puts in, and then I get to read everybody's thoughts before we start. And I just love this one. So, uh, I, as I mentioned, uh, what does the term authentic assessment mean to you? Um, because this is a term that if you look, it's all over education these days. You will be in meetings and people throw it out. And so, Jess, tell me, oh, how how important is authentic assessment to your uh, to your practice? <laughs> I don't know if we should start this. Absolutely. You start us out because everybody's in agreement. I just, it doesn't make any sense. I I don't, I feel like it's just a word to say to Mm -hmm. sound cool. Like Mm -hmm. nobody's going to do authentic assessment. It's, it sounds great, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's not attainable. It's, Mm -hmm. it's not attainable in the classrooms that we have right now. Like there is no way to uh, completely make an assessment authentic for each individual student. And if you're not making it individual, it's not authentic because you're mm. going to miss the majority of your classroom if you're aiming it towards one student. Yeah. Well, and I think you, you've hit at a, an important issue that if we're supposed to have learning targets and you're supposed to authentically assess those learning targets and you're going to have 20 some odd 20 plus students in your room, what does authentically assessing each of those students look like in most subjects? You might have an opportunity to do an authentic assessment where students are picking from things and, and, and doing this, but like, it's not something that you can practically do like a lot of times throughout the year um, and what that looks like. And yeah, it's, it, it, I, I think it's, you're right. It's jargony. Yeah. I think, well, like, I think you could also argue that formative assessment's going to be more authentic than summative. <laughs> like just to pull yeah. that in, because if you're, if you're meeting with a student and talking to them one-on-one just about the process of their learning, I, I would say that would be formative, I, you know, mm-hmm. depending on where you're at in the process, I guess. But I would say that'd be more authentic than sitting down and having them take a multiple choice test, which is mm-hmm. usually your summative. <laughs> Yeah, I think we can all agree a multiple choice test is never going to meet that authentic yes. assessment <laughs> criteria. criteria. Uh, and I struggle with essays, too. I think essays, yeah. uh, it's, it's tough. It's, it's a tough standard. All right, Tanea, what about you? Uh, I'm sure you just deeply love this this term, uh, authentic <laughs> assessment. <laughs> I, I think I agree with uh, Jessica. I, I definitely, um, I don't like the term at all. And I think what the term is getting at is that you're trying to authentically assess the students based on the learning experience that the students had in class. Um, And obviously different teachers are doing different, like let's say you have three biology teachers teaching in the same Mm -hmm. school, teaching the same class. They're not all teaching it the same way. And then, you know, some students have different needs and maybe you, you, I don't know. It just it just seems like you're not going to ever authentically um, assess students because the needs of each student are so different. And what's authentic for one person? Like who even just, who determines what authentic means 
and what what's going to be authentic for each kid. Like I think it, if it if a kid was the one who was determining what their assessment was going to be and what they needed to grow and they were doing the reflecting on their learning and they were maybe developing a portfolio and a final project and you know they were talking about their growth maybe that would be more authentic but like you know if you're teaching like a hundred and something kids you're probably not going to do all that right like you're gonna Mm -hmm. you're gonna do the multiple choice test at the end of the year and um you're gonna run it through the scantron machine or canvas is going to grade it for you or whatever but when the pandemic did happen um I did have the opportunity to not give a final exam in my biology class. And we did do a project and I, I don't think the project was perfect, but we did a project um, talking about race and biology. And like, to me, I, I wouldn't call it an authentic assessment, but the, I felt like the kids were doing a lot of reflecting about their identity and who they were and what they were learning in biology. And so to me, that was more authentic than the final exam that I normally give. And um, Hmm. so I think we should reflect as educators about our practices and what we do and why we do it. And we should challenge ourselves to, as educators to like, oh, I I shouldn't curse, should I? (laughs) I won't curse. I I have the claim. (laughs) Uh, uh, We should challenge ourselves to do something different and not just keep doing what the, you know, the crap that, um, we always do, um, yeah. because we know what we always do doesn't work for a whole lot of people. Um, so that's all I'll say. <laughs> well, and the funny thing is, is that I, as you were talking, I had two <clears throat> big things: the idea that the the assessment, maybe that authentic assessment, has to has to come from those students, is like the if the student defines what the assessment is or how they want to demonstrate the understanding, that may be the idea. But again numbers of students and numbers of teachers and, and that sort of stuff and numbers of, and the amount of content. So if you slash the content and you open up some time, there is definitely going to be space there. But, but I think that the multiple choice tests that we give across teachers is an authentic assessment of the different teachers, not of the students. <laughs> like, I think it's a good authentic measure of the effectiveness of the teachers with those populations more so than it is of the authentic assessment of the students understanding of the, of the concepts. And uh, yeah, maybe that's part of the reason why they exist. Erin, if we have time, uh, could Tanea yeah. talk about, and Tanea, if you wouldn't mind doing it, can you tell a little bit more about your project that you did with your biology class? That sounds yeah, really I'd like awesome. Yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, okay, so I'm, I'm teaching the regular biology content that all the teachers normally would teach. Um, I just, at the end of certain units, or as we're going through particular units, and um, we, I would just bring in questions like, is race a biological construct? You know, what can you define people uh, and put them into racial categories uh, based off of uh, biology? You know, what does it mean to be white or black or Asian or however you identify? And hey, is skin color the same thing as like race? Do they mean the same thing? And so when we're talking about like natural selection or evolution or even um, like how we go about um, classification, talking about meiosis, talking about like DNA, then we have something to come back to, right? So we can talk, we can talk about skin color and 
how is skin color work? We can talk about it during heredity. And so like, I just have these conversations weaving throughout all the regular content that we're already doing. And then at the end of the, well, when I did this before in my class, at the end of the year, what the students did is they created a video project and they basically tried to use, like they tried to answer the question, yes or no, race is biological. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they tried to use all the stuff they learned in biology to answer why it's, I mean, the idea is that they're going to say race is not biological, <laughs> right. um, but um, they, and they tried to use all the stuff that we learned in class. So, and then additional research that they did as well to basically um, explain their, their thought process. Right. But what was really good is they brought in like personal aspects, like things that happened to them in their lives or things that yeah. were important, their identity or things that they um, like, I had kids that identify as white and they were like, Hey, why do I identify as white? My family is Iranian. Or, you know, should people who are from the Middle East identify as white? And I'm like, that's a good question. You know, and I'm not, it's not my (laughs) job to answer the question, but like for them to be thinking about that stuff and then go back home and have a conversation about their family and then they're learning about their history or they're calling up their grandparents, like that's what we want, right? Right. From kids. That's awesome. I felt like it was helping um, me as a teacher, but it was also helping the kids um, just grow as individuals and think. And then the idea is that like, I don't want people to have racist thoughts and ideas. And hopefully I'm not passing on things that are contributing to that. Like I try as best I can, obviously. Um, And then, um, yeah, so it's a, it's a process though. So I'm, like I said, like in, in the fall, I don't know what my classes are going to look like exactly. I don't know how it's going to go, but I just think as teachers, we should try different things, whether they work or not, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And was that, if I remember correctly, was there a interdisciplinary component to the project that you did one year? Oh yeah. Once, so one year I, um, I, it was another te- an English teacher who actually collaborated with me. So we had the seniors from an English class, a creative writing class, work with the freshmen from my biology class, mm. and they did writing pieces. So, excuse me. So they wrote um, creative writing pieces talking about like their understanding of race. And I was really happy with that particular group of kids who did that because there were seniors who had come out of that saying, hey, I, I was actually like, I deeply believe that race was biological and like, I've, I'm reshaping how I'm thinking now based on having these conversations with these freshmen. So, you know, we don't know what our kids think unless we ask. And so we should ask and we should have the conversations and we should um, at least, at least get them started thinking about things that we normally don't talk about, but then that's a whole other conversation. Cause we got all these laws <laughs> being passed saying you can't talk about race and stuff. So yeah. Ah. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, you know, I, I'm glad we were able to bring that in and, um, and that Mark has to follow that, not me, but, um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, but I think you do bring in a couple of those key components of like, you know, that's a case where, you know, the, the, the canvas was sort of set. Um, and there was a lot of space there. There was a lot of space for kids to bring things in. There wasn't a predetermined series of check boxes that, that, that there were right answers that, that students had to have about their own identity or about what sources they brought in. There was structure and there were some guardrails and there was some priming of things to get them to that project. But, you know, 
you weren't controlling what those English students were writing. Right, that, right. That, that, that came out from an authentic exchange between students. So I would consider those fairly authentic pieces of work that they were, they were generating a result, a result of that. All right. Well, I well, hope, I hope I gave you a little breather there, Mark. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, I, I was furiously writing so many things down. So that's just <laughs> seriously, uh, I'm always looking for those kinds of kernels to make connections. That's just really mm-hmm. cool. So, um, I will be contacting you today. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, seriously, seriously. Um, so I think, uh, so in my, in my, in my life, I'm not as old as our, our great Brad Williams, <laughs> but I've been around, you know, and, and, uh, uh, my high school biology experience was the hundred point multiple choice test every Friday. I think it was in May. I finally got a couple of points wrong. And, um, that, and then I went to, I went to college and I went to graduate school and, and the first really authentic assessment I think I experienced wasn't until graduate school. I was, uh, I was a TA at the university of Iowa college of medicine department of anatomy. We were like, three weeks ahead of the medical students and we were, we were doing upper body and our professor uh, asked us the question like, okay, so somebody takes a knife and they stab you on the lateral line, the seventh intercostal space. Tell me everything, you know, and we're like, <laughs> you know, we're, we didn't have to memorize. It was like, we just needed to be able to explain what it was passing through. And, and you know, that was like as real as it could get. Um, now, since then, so that was, you know, I, that, there was just a lot of content and knowledge that had to happen to be able to explain the human body um, and okay. where things were located. Um, right now, it, I, I live in two different worlds. So I have my sophomores, just like, you know, we're talking about the scale of things, right? So my sophomore general biology classes, and then I have these seniors that are in this AP research class that they spend the year doing authentic that i mean that's you know that's we all get that tattooed it's on their shoulders it's authentic <laughs> you know because they come with they come with a question or several questions and they that they, they spend the year trying to answer that and it's based on their curiosities and i've really thought long and hard about that experience like how can i bring that into my biology students we 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 do lots of lab work but most of it is still directed by me um, how do I allow the students' curiosities? You know, I wish my whole biology class for the year was based on yeast or algae, <laughs> something that we just kept going back to over and over and over again. Because, like, like it, when I was at, when I was working as a grad student, we worked with chicken embryos. That's all we ever did. It didn't matter what your experiment was. That's what you were using. You were going to use chicken embryos, and authentically that, you know, after a while you get this familiarity with it. Now you can start thinking about it as opposed to we do these one and done labs that, that are my, I think my labs are better than the cookbook labs I started with back in the eighties because I, I, they just are just the way they're put together and the questions that are asked. And it really allows the students to ask some questions about the phenomena. We're, uh, I think we'll talk about that at some point maybe, but, <laughs> but it's still, it's still not, we're not there yet. And, you know, yeah. so the things that Tanea is saying 
like we got to change things up. We need to do things. We, we got to get, we, we need to stay on that path to better. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and just keep working towards that because it does, um, the biology students that I have and, um, they're, they have to take a biology class. It's not honors biology. It's not AP biology. None of these students are going to, you know, probably do anything in health sciences. They're not going to do, this is going to be their last biology class. Right. And, uh, I really want to move toward that business. We'll, we'll, I'll throw Paul Anderson in there. You know, we got to get the wonder back and, and then things become, can become really authentic, um, with anything that we assess because it's based on your, their curiosity. They get, mm -hmm. they get a chance to decide how they're going to show their learning. And that's really what it should be. I'm not, I'm not there yet. And I'm, you know, yeah. I, I still got a, I got a few miles left in the tank, so I got, <laughs> I still got a ways well, to you go. Know, I feel like as you're doing that, because as a lover, a great deep lover of yeast uh, that I am, um, and algae as well, but uh, I was like thinking like, gosh, imagine if instead of the, the lab that we do where it's like, hey, we've got this hydrogen peroxide and we have this catalase, we were like, hey, these are yeast. Um, do yeast have an enzyme that deals with this substrate? And that's the question. Yeah. You, what substrate? What substrate? Substrate do you want? Do yeast? Do yeast produce lactase? How, right. how, okay. Yeah. How, okay. How would you yeah. test it? Yeah. What would be you know? What would be your independent? What would you bring in? All right. Like I've, here's how yeast works, and we've got this yeast. If I mixed yeast with, what could I mix it with, and find out if it has the enzyme lactase? Would it? How do, does it have? Well, you know, they could ask the question. You could do the the lab with them as the baseline lab where you do the um, you know, the peroxidase, the, the hydrogen peroxide yeah. lab, and they, they, they do that. And they're like, all right, so they have an enzyme that deals with hydrogen peroxide. Great. Ask another enzyme question. What's a, what's another, pick another substrate. What's another, and how would you measure that coming out? Yeah. And that could be a fairly authentic, you know, and they could start thinking, they could do some research and they could, they could demonstrate and do all that stuff. It's make, oh, making me think of like, that's just taking that lab and is it authentic? Well, it's, you know, using your phrase, it's more authentic. Yeah. It's more authentic if the yeah. student came up with the thing that they're testing um, and <laughs> they would fail for uh, nine months and not move their PhD project forward at all. But that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> no, no. But we could give them a little bit of guardrails on that. But yeah, uh, yeah I mean, for me, like I'm, I'm really happy to hear everybody's taste on this because the closest thing I feel like I do to authentic assessments is I have groups do group lab reports. Um, and, and I have them write them in the form of, uh, the paper submission guidelines. And this is for AP for the journal of emerging investigators. Mm. Um, and so what I would do is we would do one quarter, one quarter, two quarter, three. And again, this is, this is pre pandemic times that we would do this. And then in quarter four, we had been working with a bunch of model organisms and I had them pick their question and then, and then write it out. And I actually had three separate groups submit their term for group lab report to the journal of emerging investigators and get feedback. And two of them actually got published. Cool. Um, cool. Yeah. After the fact. And so we say that we model this mode of publication that we're building towards, you know, and that you're writing papers like the journal articles that we break down, you know, like we read journal articles, we break down journal articles, but this is how scientists communicate with each other. So we're going to write like that. You don't write those by yourself. 
because mm-hmm. you know you work in a lab that's part of a team and mm-hmm. di- different people bring different strengths uh, you peer review each other's work you criticize each other's work you critique you get a better job and then you have some submissions so i have had you know we've been doing that for probably about five or six years um and after a couple of years i had a couple of juniors who were like hey let's let's submit that let's put that in and they did and it was good gr- it was great and they got back feedback that on these a level lab reports that they got in high school here are the 12 things that you have to change if you want to get a publication and it was a wake up call for those kids and you know one group was like nope um and they're like see you we're going to have a good Stick. summer and <laughs> but two of them they came back and one of them had to learn a whole new statistical test to to analyze their data and they developed a new thing but it, they were they had a goal that they were working for it was their own motivation these are kids who were writing the paper they weren't even in my class when it got published hmm. those these you know eight students weren't taking biology anymore these were kids who were in their senior year and they were still following through with this publication and i was you know mentoring them through that process but they were it was their own interest their own yep, desire their, their own, own right their their own they owned it yeah. um and and they were they were motivated by having that idea of being published in a peer-reviewed journal as their goal all right. Well, while we're talking about assessments, we're going to cap off with uh, I was I was looking for my 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 thought and I had a student meet with me the other day and I want to know and I think our, our our intro question sort of led me to think this is probably the right way to go uh, is I want to ask about the concept of test anxiety. Um, and, and do your students talk about either test or assessment anxiety and and how do you help students deal with that? And and so, Tanea, in your experience, is, is this something that you're regularly seeing? I don't know if it's gotten worse or better during the pandemic, or or, or what are you what are you seeing in terms of, of assessment or test anxiety with students? I think students have all types of anxiety, but uh, definitely mm-hmm. there are kids that have test anxiety, um, and I would say that I have it too. Obviously, <laughs> based on what happened with my GREs. Um, <laughs> And I don't like being rushed. And I feel like uh, just the way that schools and society is structured, that we value, like, if you did it fast, then you're better, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's sometimes there's situations where you're taking a test and someone's watching over you. And, like, who really (laughs) wants somebody watching over them when they're trying to think? So... Yeah, kids have a lot of anxiety, and I really, I don't know what the answer is to um, ease it, except uh, I tell the kids, like, like, I'm here to help you, like, I care about you, and I want you to be successful, and I really do, I'm doing everything to try to set you up for success, and so um, we can, we'll we'll support each other, like, all the students and everything, we're going to support each other to get to the point where we can over-prepare for the test and, and feel confident about the material. And it's as much as possible, it's based off of all the discussions we've had in class. So I try to help kids um, not have so much anxiety, but there's kids who still do. So I don't know what the answer is, but um, just try to, yeah, we should just get rid of tests basically. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it is, a, it is an interesting thing. And, and, and I will, um, yeah, if, in the absence of that, your, your, your comment makes me think that the relationships matter, mm. like, like that, that a, that a, a, that there are things that you can do to lower that boiling point or lowering that temperature rather keep the boiling point where it is, lower the temperature. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and get it so that the environment or the relationship 
um, allows them to not feel as anxious um, because they don't feel they're being judged um, in that situation. Uh, Mark, how about you? Uh, what are you seeing in terms of you've got your this this broad swath of kids and different levels? Uh, what, how are you dealing with test, test anxiety? Well, it's it's simple. You just remove their amygdala. It's just <laughs> just just as simple as that. And then they just yeah. they don't really care. You get rid of that reptilian part of their brain, and they're all they're all good. Okay, uh, chief. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and but, you're old enough to get the one flew over the cuckoo's nest <laughs> reference. <laughs> exactly. You know the, um, you know, in in the midst of in the midst of pandemic, we've all just struggled with relationships, and I and I honestly, I read, I read so many, I read so many books and so many articles, and uh, I forget who the author was, but it was, it was about the amygdala. We, we, we got to stay away from triggering the amygdala because if we're, if, if we're turning that part of a brain, the brain on that, then students can't learn, right? If they're, if they're stressed because of, of flu or whatever, it doesn't matter if there's that stress, they just really struggle with, with learning. And so, uh, you know, it's interesting to think about that word the word assessment actually comes from a Latin term that, that means to sit next to. It really means to sit by someone. And, um, you know, those conversations that we've talked about here with, with formative practice, those assessments that are really powerful views into uh, a student's thinking. And I, I, you know, I try to eliminate that, you know, the, the, the stress of test and just try to make it as, low stakes as possible. You know, the business of any kind of score that a student gathers, you know, that observed score in that, in that score is what they really know. But then there's the error score, the error score of like, oh man, I, I chose A when I meant to say B, right? Mm. Or I was up late last night working on my creative writing paper, or I had to work or I had to take care of my I had to take care of my little brother yesterday because my mom and dad were gone and I didn't get a chance to study. And so in that, in that business of assessment and thinking about what the word really means, I really try to be, I really try to be compassionate um, about that anxiety because they do that. Our, my students in my school are so hyper aware of grades. I mean, they get alerts on their phones when teachers put a score in. And wow. I just, I, I, it's just like, don't, don't do that. And, you know, there's, I, I try to coach them up, you know, it's not a measure of you. It's, it's just a, mm -hmm. you, you know, you just, how, how well you did or how well you didn't is not a measure of you. I still like you as a person. It's just, <laughs> you didn't know about the Krebs cycle, you know, it's just, <laughs> you know, and maybe you really didn't need about know about the Krebs cycle anyway, that, you know, that, that ties back into something else, but, um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm really aware and, and try to be as gentle as I can with my students about it. And I do offer redos and retakes. Uh, I, I level my tests. Um, you know, they're based on different uh, depths of knowledge. You know, you do well on one part. You don't necessarily need to redo that. But if there are parts of the test you didn't do, then we'll sit down and figure out, you know, how we can learn that. You know, uh, the same things all, all you have, have spoken about tonight. 
All right. Well, <clears throat> anatomy coming through again from you, Mark. You got the <laughs> amygdala removal removal part. Um, I don't know that I'm going to endorse that uh, as a f- official uh, life of the school policy. Fair uh, enough. But, uh, Fair enough. <laughs> but I appreciate the creative uh, creative problem solving. Um, Jess, how about you? Uh, what are you seeing in terms of test anxiety and, and helping students deal with with their assessments? Uh, it's. I think it's definitely increased uh, from my perspective, like Mark talking about them getting the notifications on their phones. And there are so many who, if they don't have an A, it is the, it is awful. And that's not a good place to be at because like Mark said, you're not going to, a lot of them are going to have to learn things that they aren't necessarily going to need ever again. And it's, it's okay to try your hardest and not get an A. Like, I, I feel like that's something that needs to be very clear um, because we've kind of lost that. And that doesn't mean like we need to lower our standards. It's just that we need to be realistic and um, more appreciative of the individual. Um, but in my classroom to kind of combat that test anxiety when I can, Um, which I I don't really get the opportunity to with my human body systems class, but in my other two classes, my micro and environmental science, I do projects Um, that helps so much. And I feel like it's more teaching them how to do science versus memorize. Um, And Mm -hmm. I know you can design test questions to answer that and everything, but once they hear the word test versus we get prepared to do a project, you can definitely sense there's different levels of anxiety in there when we talk about those two things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually had a student who told me in a recent, you know, meeting that she was, she said that she, she physically felt nervous about the test like a week before, Mm. like, like a week before the test was starting to feel it. Um, And my, my reaction to that was, you know, I, I asked her if she was feeling test anxiety and she's like, yes, I definitely have that. And I was like, the way she was talking about it, I said, well, I don't think it's terminal. You know, I don't think it's a condition. I think you're experiencing test anxiety. It is not something that defines you. Like your grades don't define you. Mm-hmm. Being The experience of being anxious on the biology tests, on these fairly challenging tests in this group of like you're in a room full of nerds who all do pretty well on this test and it's an environment that is an anxiety inducing and you've been experiencing test anxiety on these tests but it does not define you you are not somebody who terminally has test anxiety let's try to develop some strategies to help you manage that to deal with that and i see it a lot more with my younger students than my older students that the anxiety is much higher because they don't have coping strategies they don't have they don't have a set of tools to deal with that and while i generally agree with the idea of not playing up the things that spark that i do see an enormous opportunity for growth for tackling something that they perceive as hard and challenging mm-hmm. and that is um as i weigh I, I i think about it is like i like something to raise their blood pressure a little bit but I don't want them to have a heart attack. You know, like there is a, there's a continuum along that. So like feeling a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of test tension, a little bit of, Ooh, this is hard. And then achieving success with that is enormously gratifying. And I think that's why some of the, you know, 
you know, nerdiest kids do really well and they like love the competition and they, they start, they get the wrong messages about that competition. They like, oh, well, if I can do it faster than somebody else, that says even more about me. And that's the wrong message. They, they, they misplace the pride they should take for accomplishment and they start doing it based off of comparison. And whereas they should be celebrating the achievement and they should be able to celebrate in the achievement of others. Hey, awesome. You did a great job. And you actually see that with kids. Like, when you look at your kids, they contain multitudes. There are kids who are just as happy when their friend does well on a test. You know, you know, you see those kids who are like, oh, my God, you did so well on that. That's awesome. And you see them celebrating other people's success. And that gives them pride. And that's great. It's the kid who's like, ha, I got 10 points more than you. Right. <laughs> you want to like, right. you, you want to like, you're like, it makes me think about my culture of my students. Like, what is the culture of my students and what kind of things do I, you know, what is the culture of the building and what is the culture of my classroom and what are the things that we're promoting that are the right ideas about these things? Because, you know, we set these things up not to create anxiety. At least I didn't set these things up to create anxiety. I set them up to to provide opportunities for achievement and success, not at the expense of somebody else, but for their own personal fulfillment and pride. And I don't want to lose that. I still want that yeah. to be there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it's it's that's a that's a case of I, I still have to think about my own uh, unconscious messages that I sent. Um, and what practices do I do that feed the wrong monster <laughs> in the classroom? You know? you know, one of the things, just a short thing, one of the things that I like to yeah. do, and this is just a simple thing. Um, when students are done with, they're doing paper pencil tests in my classroom. No one turns their tests in. They just all keep them at their desks mm -hmm. because, you know, I can remember sitting in college when you could leave the classroom when you were done and like, <laughs> I'm halfway through the test and Steve is leaving. What's wrong with me? Yeah. You know? And so one of the things that I, and, and I think I probably picked that up thinking about like when I've, when I've proctored like the, the plan test or the pre ACT or whatever, you know, everybody just stays there. No one moves. And I think that that, if that, if we can peel away just one layer, that's, that's, that's okay. Yeah. I had I had a student who said that very much that that very thing about why they like to take alternative assess or they take their assessment an alternative site right which is something our school does yeah. Um, yeah that they said that when students like if they're taking them on their Chromebook and other kids are closing their Chromebook and they could hear Chromebooks yeah. closing they would stop focusing on their test and they'd be looking around right. um, and yeah I, I understand that like you can totally see that that's but that's that that culture of comparison right. that is so pervasive that how do you break that culture of comparison? And, and, and by the way, it may be impossible because we deal with teenagers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> might, yeah. And, 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 uh, and I don't, I don't know that I, that, that level of biology, I may not be able to overcome. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I think uh, I, I certainly have had a lot to think about uh, when it comes to assessment. Hopefully everybody enjoyed that. So uh, please subscribe to life to school on your podcast player of choice. Uh, you can also get show notes at lifeoftheschool.org. Uh, you can also become a Patreon by going to patreon.com slash lots. I do early releases for episodes, sometimes as often as like three or four days earlier, and sometimes, you know, 12 hours early. But we know how busy our weeks are. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and Ex-Magicians. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. I will tag this panel when I tweet out this episode and thanks for all for joining us and we'll talk to you soon. All right.